North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome to another episode of The Impossible State. This is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS, Vice Dean and Professor at Georgetown. I'm the guest host today because Andrew Schwartz could not join us on the podcast. And my guest today is Andrew Yo. Andrew is currently the Senior Fellow and the SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies at the Brookings Institution. And he is also professor of politics at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. We're going to be talking about his latest book, State, Society, and Markets in North Korea, which just came out with Cambridge University Press. But before I do that, let me tell our listeners a little bit more about Andrew. Andrew is uh, the author or co-editor of four other books, including Asia's Regional Architecture, uh, Alliances and Institutions in the Pacific Century, which came out with Stanford University Press in 2019. North Korean Human Rights, Activists and Networks, published by Cambridge in 2018 with Daniel Danielle Chubb. Living in an Age of Mistrust, an Interdisciplinary Study of Declining Trust in Contemporary Society and Politics and How to Get It Back, published by Rutledge in 2017 with Matt Green. And his uh, first scholarly book, which I remember well, Activists, Alliances, and anti-U.S.-based protests published with Cambridge in 2011. So a prolific author, but also a uh, rising and very important voice in the public policy circles, particularly since his joining Brookings. He's published in the Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, the National Interest, The Diplomat, and has been on a variety of different media, both in Asia and in the United States, including the Washington Post, The New York Times, MSNBC, uh, Japan Times, Korea Times, the list goes on and on. So uh, Andrew also is a uh, alumni of our CSIS Next Gen Scholars Program, and he's also serves on the advisory board for that. So we're, uh, he's no stranger to CSIS and uh, and a personal friend and colleague for many, many years in, in the Washington, D.C. circuit. So uh, Andrew, it's great to have you with us today. I know that you're joining us from Korea, so uh, thanks for thanks for joining us from so far away. Thank you, Victor. It's a real honor to be on this podcast and to join you on a topic that you know both of us have thought up, thought about for a while. So again, very grateful for you to give me the opportunity to talk a little bit about my research and the book. Yeah, that's terrific. So th- this book, State, Society, and Markets in North Korea, is one of these books in the Cambridge element series. So it's one of these shorter manuscripts that are less than 100 pages that combine both the scholarly knowledge and policy expertise 
on a topic that's pretty opaque, which is the notion of markets, but also the relationship between state and markets in North Korea. Andrew, I know you've done a lot of work on North Korea. I've done a lot of work on North Korea. Whenever I speak on North Korea, it's usually a doom and doom and gloom mm-hmm. talk. But at the end, I always try to end on a bright note. And the bright note that I end on is to talk about the growth of markets in North Korea and the uh, the sort of grassroots entrepreneurship we see on North Korea. Uh, but you've done quite a lot of work on this lately, particularly looking at different aspects of markets. And I wanted to sort of talk to you about that if we could. So under Kim Jong-un, North Korea has experienced growing economic markets, an emerging nouveau riche, if you will, of consumers and a consumer class, and some modest levels of urban de- development. And so for our listeners, I mean, if you could just sort of give us a sense of how you see the markets Evolve, the history, sort of the markets and their evolution in North Korea as, as a sort of jumping off point, that would be great. Sure. Well, we know that North Korea is a socialist state. Uh, and in theory, there shouldn't be markets in capitalism. In fact, the regime always talks about you know, the, the scourge of capitalism growing within North Korea. But this was a development that really began to take place after the arduous march of the Great Famine in the 1990s. And it got to the point where in a socialist system, the state is supposed to provide for all your needs, for your housing, for your food, food subsidies, education. But the economy was already shrinking after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But with the famine, it really became a a free-for-all. And with the state no, no longer able to provide for the livelihood of North Koreans, North Koreans became resourceful and started to look for opportunities themselves in the face of mass starvation. So that's when you began seeing more market activity, and that's how North Koreans were able to, uh, North Koreans were able to survive. But then the regime itself saw that you know it also needed to allow for some uh, some sort of reform. They don't call it reform because that implies that something was wrong with the existing system. But they had certain measures, special measures that were put in place that would allow state workers to leave their official job and to you know, work in markets, meaning they can grow vegetables uh, and sell whatever excess uh, vegetables or fruits they have uh, to other people at a vendor. So this began to grow. And uh, you know what began as general markets and then the Changmadang became larger in scale. So you had you know, electronics, you know, household goods, and then moved to things like gasoline, real estate, transportation. So we have seen the markets rise, and it's a paradox, a bit of a paradox, because again, it's supposed to be a a socialist state, yet you know we 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 see the rise of these markets. There has been some change in that front, although it's it varies, of course, by region, and uh, a lot of the market activity we see is along the border regions with with China. But um, so, so we can't generalize everywhere, but clearly uh, we've seen this growth of markets taking place within the country over the last um, you know, 20, 25 years. So can you give us a sense then, uh, you know, so these markets grew out of the famine. They were really a survival mechanism for the people when the, the PDS, the public distribution system broke down. Can you give us a sense of what, what the size of these markets are, like how many there are, what percentage of the economy they are. I mean, I know these. We're talking about North Korea, so it's not like they release data all the time on this. But, but what is your sense of this? The sort of size of the markets and how much of the economy and how much of the livelihood of the average North Korean do, does this now 
apply. Sure. Well, I mean, your study that you did at CSIS on Beyond Parallel, wasn't it around in terms of markets? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to measure because if you're just looking at market stalls or, you know, places where you, you know, locations where markets exist, I mean, we've seen estimates between four to 500. I thought Beyond Parallel was maybe four, 480. And there are a few other studies that try to use satellite imagery to make uh, counts, but that's not really helpful to know. I mean, it, so we know that they, there's, they're quite prevalent, but from other studies in terms of uh, interviews with, with defectors that other research and scholars have done, we know that 70 to 80 percent of North Koreans participate in markets. In fact, it's become essential to one's livelihood. So in terms of the size and scope, I mean, you can try to count the number of market locations. And again, uh, you know, it's all kind of estimating looking at satellite uh, imagery. But in terms of, you know, when you ask defectors and, and you ask them to give estimates, and I'd also I talk about you know, f- information from field workers foreigners who go into North Korea for, you know, humanitarian or development work or even business, you know, it seems like 70 to 80% seems reasonable. So in terms of how much market activity there is, that's quite a bit. And in terms of the economy uh, between the formal and then the informal economy, again, it's hard to put a dollar value on it, but, you know, someone say uh, two thirds to three quarters of the economy is, is reliant or dependent on, on what's earned from, from the informal sector. And we can talk about this more, but it's it's a very gray area of what becomes formal, uh, formal and, and informal, because, of course, uh, party officials, you know, the state state owned enterprises, they're also in in the on the whole market game as well, too. So does that make it legal or illegal? Is it official or unofficial? So, so that's why it's hard to give any particular numbers. But we do know that markets are are prevalent and may even consist of the majority of you know what. Uh, of, of the income that's earned by North Koreans today. Does the public distribution even system even still exist in North Korea, or has it really been rendered irrelevant by the market? I've heard uh, two different counts. So I assume that it was uh, pretty much broken at this point. I heard that it exists, but it's never enough at this point to to live on. And so it, it formally exists, but you know many people still have to supplement whatever they receive from the uh, public distribution system with the rations that they receive with, you know, what are, whatever else they're, they're earning. So, yeah. And then of course the public distribution system was intended as a, as a mechanism to control the population. And that's why we get into questions in the book. Well, if the state is no longer feeding you and you're kind of earning your keep, you know, does that raise questions about, you know, what kind of state is North Korea or if, if the state is promising one thing, but then it's really on your own, uh, efforts or will or work that allows you to survive. You know how how does that? What are the perceptions of of the state then at, at, at that point? And then so and they can pretty much get anything they want in the markets, right? And does a lot of it does a lot of it come through China or Russia or where? How are they? How do how are the markets stocked? Yeah, so it's through. Um, I mean, uh, of course, the majority of goods are coming in from. Uh, from China, and that's why the border regions is where you have the most market activity. But there are goods that come from other, uh, you know, Ill- you know, illicit goods. There's goods that are brought in uh, illegally, and that can come uh, despite sanctions. You know, we've seen this in the report from the UN panel of experts. But I would say the majority of the goods are coming in from are coming in from China, and even if they're goods from other parts of the world, from the U.S., from Europe from Russia, they're still coming in through the border. 
uh, in China. Very interesting stuff. Can we talk now a little bit about sort of the relationship between the state and markets? I guess the question here really is, the state in many ways is forced to condone these markets because they're a big part of the economy now. And they, without them, I mean, not only would there be problems with regard to people being able to get enough to eat or for their livelihood, but it would definitely affect prices. Oh, yeah. So... I mean, that's so one of the things I'm learning from our interviews. So we're doing I'm doing interviews like all of last week and this week. I've been interviewing North Korean defectors with we have a, a local partner, the Center for Korean Women Politics. Um, so uh, they have a, a local researcher who's worked with defectors before who's actually conducting the interviews. But I've been sitting in and, and listening and, and also asking questions, too. But but one of the key things takeaways so far from you know the 10 interviews we've done so far is that you know almost all the defectors had some kind of connection to the party or they had some kind of backing so that they knew that they if they got in trouble that they could be bailed out so in some ways the state is condoning this or they're using their connections or ties to the state to be able to run the business and i'll give you an example so the very first person that we were able to interview was someone who drove a, a truck. He was a delivery driver and he worked for a, a state-owned enterprise that had ties to the military. That's how he has access to the vehicle. But he said that he was allowed to make deliveries on the side. Actually, the, uh, the state-owned enterprise told him to do that, but he would get 10% of the cut and then the 90% would go to the government or to, back to the, the state. And then he would, you know, so he would find people who needed uh, goods distributed, you know, across the country. And when he when he left, he would say it would take a week to to drive out and to go to the different stops. And he would negotiate the price. He would, you know, and he would say, well, I have this much experience. My vehicle is good. So he said he could charge a little bit higher than maybe some of the some other drivers. Now, this is technically, you know, not part of the formal economy. It's unofficial. And then he said later he raised enough money to buy his own vehicle. There's supposed to be no private ownership or property, uh, but he said he bought a, he purchased a bus. And so he was, do, he had other people to help him do these deliveries. Now, again, it's, it's a question of, is this legal or illegal? But the fact that the state is allowing him to do this and that the state is in on it, they're making money, suggests that it's not entirely illegal. So the state, we can see is wrapped up in this market, in this enterprise where they're making extra money in addition to whatever deliveries they're doing on the clock, you know, for the state, they're making additional money. Or, you know, we met someone who decided to uh, open a, a, you know, an entertainment, you know, it was like a recreational center in Pyongyang. And I asked, well, how are you able to do that? And he, you know, he, so he completely runs it by himself. It seems like he has no issues, you know, getting customers, charging people, and uh, no one really tells him what to do, but he said he needed to get a permit from, like the central committee in Pyongyang. So clearly someone had let him do this. And of course he had, he was from the elite, he was from Pyongyang and so he had connections. So we can see here that the state is very much involved in many of these enterprises and and a lot of the market activity that's involved. So it almost seems like if you don't have some sort of support from the state, whether directly or indirectly, it's very difficult to be able to operate in markets, unless it's you're operating at a very, very small, uh, small scale, where it's completely like, where it would really be just like a, a black market, but 
But in most cases, uh, it seems like there's some some level of state involvement. So the government, the state is wedded now wedded to these markets because they're basically either, as you said, through the issuing of licenses or taxing, they're they're making substantial income off mm-hmm. of these markets. Do we have any idea about how how much the state is making off of these markets? It's difficult to know because most so even doing these interviews, it's all it's anecdotal, so it's hard to get some sort of estimate. And, and of course, this is all informal and it's all like cash transactions. So although they, they, they have this like mobile payment system now these days, but but certainly the state is making money off of this. There, there's no question about that, that they're making money off these markets as well. Uh, as well, too. And it leads to this follow up question, though, because, you know, markets are seen as empowering the people. But I think that's why the question of yes is very important. If you want to support markets, you can say it's empowering the people, but you could come around and say, well, aren't you also empowering the state uh, as well, too, or making the state, you know, filling the state coffers? So so that's it's an important question, I think, that we, you know, I think further research will have to try to untangle. Yeah, uh, very, very interesting stuff. I mean, could you, uh, could we talk, I know that a lot, like, uh, as I said in the intro, one of your books is looking at the whole question of trust in contemporary politics. And and I know that you, you're in your research on markets and your interviews, you're looking at sort of the role that trust plays, uh, or the extent to which markets have created this concept of trust in society mm-hmm. and how North Koreans interact with each other. Could you talk a little bit about what you're finding? Sure. Uh, I mean, this has been the sort of question that we've been trying to probe. And it's been very frustrating because to the point where I wonder if just the concept of trust is is different for North Koreans, because oftentimes if you just ask them, did you trust other you know, business partners or people that you worked with or you had exchanged, you know, you made transactions with, you know, some will say, no, you can't really trust anyone in North Korea. But then the examples or the anecdotes they give clearly show that they trust someone enough to to conduct business with. So someone that we uh, interviewed recently was was selling gasoline and they were telling us, well, how do they pay you? And they said sometimes they would make an agreement with a, they, they would have they, they wouldn't sign any contract. So none of our interviewees said that they had any written contracts. But they would still record, you know, in a transaction, they would record prices. And they said, we would charge them for one year's worth of gas. They would say that we will supply you gas for one year and you're going to pay us. But they can't pay that up front. Clearly, that's uh, there's some level of trust there that allows them to say that we're going to offer you gas for one year. You have to pay us. They're not always paid up front because the people who are trying to buy the gas have some sort of business where they need gasoline and so they'll you know they'll pay it over time but by the, at the end of the year you know they're supposed to to pay everything so so to me that's trust but when i ask so did you trust these people they said well you know it's because we had mutual interest and or we we've known each other for some time so we know that they're not going to cheat us because of their reputational effects so it's there's different gradations maybe of trust. So it's, it could be a thin level of trust. But then on the other hand, you know, when you, defectors or when North Koreans are starting off with a business, they often go to their relatives or their friends. And so, you know, there they must have trusted their, you know, parents or their uncle to help support them. So, 
So there is trust, but we're trying to look for other words. We're wondering, well, if trust is maybe understood as something very deep within North Korea, what about the term reliability? So some other North Koreans have said, well, when you look at another person, there's certain signs or check boxes that you can check saying like, well, what's their, what's their background? Or do they seem, uh, have you heard from other people, whether they were honest or dishonest, or this person doesn't lie, or this person has a reputation of being a hard worker. And on that basis, they might be able to you know, conduct business or you know, exchange with, uh, with another person. So, so it's very rational in that sense. It's like a rational form of trust. And I think at the end of the day, this more generalized trust, it does exist at, you know, with, with family and, and maybe some close friends. But uh, in the markets, um, that, that sort of generalized trust is, I mean, they tell us it seems to be lacking, but, but we're, not, we're not quite sure what, what to make of it yet. And what word do you use for trust? Shilesong. We also use midum, like midum chikzo, are you believable? But shile, shile is usually the, the term that we're, uh, that we're using. But because there are also a lot of cases of fraud in these markets, and I think so North Koreans are all, you know, often wary whenever they're transacting or they're doing business with money. But that's part of our research. You know, we want to know, well, what are the mechanisms or what, are the, you know, what allows you know, businesses to survive? How do you know that you're not going to be swindled or cheated? And, and you know, one, one interviewee said, well, you know, when you do business, let's say you have 10 customers, you know, three out of the 10, you know, aren't going to pay you back or aren't able, not necessarily because they're bad people, but they not be, they might not be able to pay you back for whatever finance because of their financial circumstances. But yeah, so three out of 10 are not going to be good business partners, but you still have seven others where you're making money. So you kind of take your losses where they are. And, and so that's like one approach that I think North Koreans have taken when you do business in, in North Korea, when you have, when, when you're engaged with, uh, engaged in markets. Interesting. And of course, part of your research here with regard to trust in markets is I know that part of your argument is looking at the role that markets play in creating a latent civil society. Yeah. Because it's fair to say that absent the markets or prior to the prior to the arduous march, mm -hmm. uh, North Koreans didn't really interact with each other in the way that they do because of these markets. And so, yeah, um, and that becomes a, that obviously becomes an agent of change. Can I ask you? Um, so you were saying earlier that they get a lot of their livelihood from the markets, even the states are now the state is now complicit with the market party officials are. How have the markets fared in the face of COVID? I mean, there's been this huge lockdown in North Korea now going on well over two years now, almost two and a half years. And so how is, has this, based on your interviews and research, how has this affected what's supplied in the market and how has it affected the government's views of the market and the general public's views of markets? Yeah, sure. That's an excellent question. And from our interviews this time around, and and we, we've tried to conduct interviews with the most recent defectors, but that means 2019. So this is all pre, still pre-COVID. And we've asked that question too, of, have you heard word back from you know, people that you communicate with in North Korea, what's going on? And I mean, we've heard, I think more have said that, you know, they, they, that they haven't really been able to communicate that frequently, that they know that the economy has been hit pretty, uh, pretty hard, that it's, it's harder to get Parts. So let's say you, you're a driver, it's harder to get spare parts 
these days if, if something breaks down. So certainly there's been an impact in getting, having goods uh, because of the reduced quantity of goods flowing into uh, North Korea. But others have said, you know, surprisingly that, you know, they're still able to get what they need to get. Supply chain problems, huh? <laughs> I mean, make, make of that what you will. But of, of course, you know, we can't generalize from just a handful of uh, of defectors. But um, but it goes back to the story about North Koreans being very resilient and they muddle through. So I my sense is, and this is just my hunch from speaking with some of these defectors and you know, what they've they've heard but there is uh times are tough in north korea right now that that it's it's quite difficult but the markets are still uh, operating to uh to some degree and even with i guess gasoline i heard that you know they're still able to it, it i don't know how much they're charging you know the global gas prices everywhere is through the roof i mean even here in i mean here in south korea i don't know it's like i mean it'd be equivalent to like eight nine dollars a gallon but despite the high price of, of energy and gas, uh, it's still circulating in the markets. But I just don't know at, at, at what price. But, but yeah, it, it is uh, tough times in North Korea. In terms of the government, you know, I'm of the school of thought that you know, markets activity ebbs and flows uh, in terms of the regime's own response to whether they tolerate markets versus whether they want to clamp down. And we know just from you know, the eighth party Congress uh, that met uh, January 2021, that North Korea and, and Kim Jong-un specifically was looking to rein in markets that he wanted more economic authority to be centralized. So they were moving away from decentralization. So that's a sign that, not a sign that he was going to get rid of markets, but certainly that he wanted more control over what was happening with the economy. But that was interpreted as saying that, you know, he's we're not going to see a loosening of, of restrictions that allow for market activities to flourish. But, you know, we, we know that the state can't shut down markets completely because, as, as we mentioned, the state is so intertwined in the market activity. And there'd be no way for uh, party officials to make money that they still have to allow it. But I think there's just sort of tighter control over what's happening. And there were reports of ton, uh, the tonju, so the money masters, those have amassed a large uh, amount of wealth from the markets in our you know, lending money that uh, a few dungeons have gotten in trouble with the state and were in prison. Uh, you know, they were charged with, with corruption. Um, so maybe the state was unhappy with how some of the new uh, money masters were, were managing wealth or maybe they weren't giving enough uh, kickbacks to a certain official. So we, we have seen, I don't know if it's a crackdown, but we've seen restrictions on uh, on the market during uh, during COVID. Andrew, the last question I want to ask you is, if these markets are, you know, in many ways, the only true agent for change in North Korea, because the politics of North Korea is not changing, the security situation is not changing. The only thing that's really changing is really what we're seeing in terms of markets and economic activity, in terms of civil society, the relationship between state and society, in your view, what does this all mean for U.S. policy? How should U.S. policymakers be thinking about, you know, arguably, aside from the unstoppable nuclear weapons and ballistic missile program, this is the area in North Korea where we're seeing the most activity, the most change. Mm -hmm. so what does your research mean for how we should think about it from a U.S. or South Korean policy perspective? Sure. So at the macro level, when we think about change, you, know, you can say that North Korea has changed very little. It's still one of the poorest countries in the world. In terms of human rights violations and political freedom, it ranks as one of the lowest in the country. 
and it's still a you know a, a totalitarian regime. So on one hand, you can say that there is very uh, there hasn't been much change, but you really have to look at the micro foundations of you know, North Korean society. And as you mentioned, that's where we do see some form of change uh, taking place. And it's really uh, a, a, you know this we we hear about bottom up marketization, but it's it was a means for North Koreans to survive, and it's also a way. Uh, for North Koreans to obtain information. So I, again, we don't have any statistical data, but you know, one thing we want to ask is, you know, those who participate in markets, how much more do they know about what's happening within the country? And then how much do they know about what's happening outside of the country? And, you know, part of the answer, if we, you know, if this was statistical analysis, I think it would be cor- also uh, correlated with the fact that many of the market ec- uh, participants we interviewed were also uh, they were of a higher social class, of a higher songbun, so they may have been able to get information that way. But, but certainly, when you work in markets, you have more information about the country, about what's going on, and what's happening outside of the country. And so, my thought or thinking is that it, you know, marketization is also tied with greater access to information. And I think even if it, you're not getting information from outside the country, I've noticed that. Uh, you know, North Koreans who, you know, even if their activity is limited to within a particular region, they have a better understanding of what their country looks like. And that's not to say that, you know, that they, you know, they see problems with the government and the regime that they're going to start, you know, start a revolution or they're going to uh, start protesting. So it's, it's far from that. But again, the idea is just bringing information into North, uh, North Korea so that North Koreans can see for themselves, you know, what you know, what life is like, you know, elsewhere to try to look at the gaps between what the state says and what is actually happening on the grounds in reality. And, you know, in the book, you know, I tried to look at, there, there were some surveys that were done by the Institute for Peace and Unification Studies at Seoul National University. And so there are questions about how much pride do you have in Juche or what was the frequency of criticism? This is longitudinal data. And so we see ebbs and flows. But my hope is that if you know, if it's moving in a positive direction, if they're correlated, that uh, greater marketization uh, will lead to things like, you know, we have, you know, we're less supportive of Juche, we have less pride in Juche, or we're more likely to have some kind of complaints. You know, North Koreans will say Pulman, Pulman with, uh, with, the, with the regime. So, so that's where I think U.S. policy can try to think about programs or activities where um, supporting markets may be one way of not only helping North Koreans, but, you know, with their livelihood, but then also helping get information inside the country. Well, in a way, you know, the, that what you just described is it could be seen as economic assistance, but it could also be seen as human rights. Right. I mean, it's right. trying to make the life of North Koreans better. How, um, so how do you square that with the sanctions policy that we now have on North Korea? Yeah, and that's a real tough one because you know sanctions, of course, are also restricting markets because the flow of goods aren't aren't coming in, and and that's where you know you see these connections or links between the nuclear issue and and sanctions and and mark, uh, market activity. You know, I've you know I've gone back and forth on this. I think if you asked me two years ago, I may have said, well, you know, you're even you know around the time of the Hanoi summit and afterwards, you know, I was more open to this idea of, of reducing some sanctions to allow goods to, uh, goods to flow. You know, if, if the process of, of denuclearization was moving forward at all, but, 
But I think that's really, uh, I think that's very, it's a, it's a very difficult proposition at this point, just because we've also seen North Korea continue uh, just marching forward with missile tests and also its nuclear capabilities. And so I think the sanctions regime is, is, has been badly weakened. I think Russia and China are no longer interested in even really, uh, I think, enforcing the sanctions. So th- does that mean that the U.S. should also try to loosen sanctions because they're not being enforced anyway? I think no, because it's um, it, w- it would send the wrong message or wrong signals. But but yeah, I, I think that's why you have to move uh, somewhat in tandem. And, and so we also have to move forward on denuclearization front and then somehow see if sanctions can be lifted, at least partially lifted, and then see what sort of uh, effect that may have on marketization. So so yeah, there's there's a lot of contradictions when it, or, you know, there could be a lot of policies that work at cross purposes. So I think uh, it's something that has to be studied carefully. And then last question, in, in your interviews that you've been doing, this may be too current, but do, is there any sense that the uh, North Korean citizens are aware of what's happening in Europe and Ukraine, or is that something that we, we just don't really know right now? That's a good question. Um, I haven't heard, um, I mean, I haven't asked that. We have asked a few defectors about news, like you know the Singapore summit or the Hanoi summit and they said that they were getting information i yeah so i i don't know because i haven't i haven't asked but that's a but in terms of how you know to what degree do they hear uh, events from the outside one defector said that they heard about like russia so i think there was some meeting between or some communication between north korea and russia and they were saying uh in the news that had come out i mean they, they're hearing it from north korean news though and so there there was a story about how the great supreme, you know, the supreme leader, or the you know, the the great leader, he's getting backing from from Russia because North Korea had supported, you know, the breakaway regions within within the Ukraine, and so they were saying how Russia was recognizing, you know, North Korea, North Korean support and help and aid, and and so they they know that there's an invasion going on, but I don't know how that's being spun for for North Koreans. Um, but it'd be interesting to get sort of, sort of information. I'm curious what would happen if they had information that you know Russia invaded Ukraine, but they weren't able to take over, and at least militarily, initially, it was a big debacle of what their impression of Russia would be. But but yeah, I don't have any uh, current um, current information on that. Great. Well, uh, thanks very much, Andrew. Again, the book that Andrew has just published is called. State Society and Markets in North Korea published in the Cambridge Elements series. And uh, this new research sounds absolutely fascinating. I know that you're in Korea this summer in part to do these uh, to do these interviews. Thanks again, for Andrew, for being on The Impossible State. And uh, we'll see you when you get back to D.C. Sure. Thank you again, Victor. And yes, see you when I'm back in Washington. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. 
We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.